Body Life by a great uh, pastor. His name is Ray Stedman. You can actually go out online and reread Stedman's books for free on his website, raystedmansomething.org or something like that. But he wrote a really famous book called Body Life. And it's centered around Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. In fact, Ray Stedman uh, went to the Dallas Theological Seminary. You know, he, he was with Chuck Swindoll. You ever heard that name? They were best buddies and stuff like that. So, I mean, you know, he was trained at uh, great schools and all that. And as he's getting ready, uh, by the way, he was mentored by Dr. Harry Ironside, if you've ever heard that name, uh, great pastor. Anyway, Ray Stedman uh, at Dallas Theological Seminary, eight families right across the street from Stanford University as he's graduating need a pastor. And they call Ray Stedman, Pastor Stedman. He comes up there and uh, he um, agrees to start the church. And their church goes from eight families to 15,000 people. Uh, I I can't remember. Very quickly. Now think about where it's located right across the street from Stanford University. A lot of ideas going on at Stanford University that are in direct opposition to what the Bible teaches. And here, Ray Stedman does it. And Ray Stedman, this is kind of off topic, but I'm going to give it to you anyway. In all 30 or 40 years of pastoring at uh, Peninsula Bible Church there across from um, uh, Stanford, he gave... Guess how many altar calls to come and give their life to Christ? Zero. And his theory was that he was going to teach about body life from Ephesians chapter 4, and that the people, he was going to train the people, that's you, to witness and bring people to Christ and disciple people, and it happened. And every Sunday night, at Peninsula Bible Church, they'd pack out the sanctuary and they would literally go up and down the rows and people would say what they needed. If there was a single mom that needed an oil change, I'm just making something up. The mechanic in the back said, I'll call you Monday. They would, <laughs> they would actually pass a plate not to put money in, although some people did put money in, but for people to take money out if they needed rent or a bill. And this is thousands of people, folks. And this went on every Sunday night. And he based his, that ministry, etc., on verse 11 or verse 7 of chapter 4 of the book of Ephesians. I know we're going to 1 Corinthians 5. And it says this, but to each one of us, chapter 4, verse 7, Ephesians, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive, and he gave gifts to men. Now this he ascended, what does it mean? But that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth. He who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things, but he's talking about spiritual gifts. Everybody gets a spiritual gifts based on the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Okay, file that away. But then he goes on and he said, and he himself, and he himself, sorry, verse 11, gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors, teachers, look over there on that banner, for the equipping 
of the saints for the work of the ministry. Are you catching it? Body life. This is the way a church looks and is supposed to look. For the edifying of the body of Christ. Edify just means build up. If you see an edifice downtown, a skyscraper, it's an edifice. It's been built up. For the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man, to the measure of the uh, stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. But speaking, this is important, the truth in love, watch this. In body life, we're to grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what, that, what every joint supplies according to the effective working by which every part does its share causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. Now, isn't that a fantastic piece of scripture? And we all love to read about it. I love to read Ephesians chapter 4. And I hope you do too. It's, a, it's um, one side of the coin of the church. But there's other things that happen in a church. And it's the way the church works. And today, we're going to talk about a topic that many people don't like to talk about. They shy away from. And we're examining body life today. We saw Ephesians 4, and now we're going to check out 1 Corinthians 5. You see, when a person gives their life to Jesus Christ and joins a local fellowship, this isn't like the Kiwanis Club. This is a body of people who are filled with the Holy Spirit. Some aren't, but most are. Who are filled with the Holy Spirit. And we try in America and other places to run the church like it's a secular organization. You have a hierarchy, da-da-da-da. And underneath, and, and you know, the pastor's up here, and then there's others, and then that's how we try to run the church. And in fact, what the pastor really is, is just the lead servant. He would be at the bottom here, underneath the Lord Jesus Christ. So we have a different animal here, the body of Christ. We're the body of Christ. We're spirit-filled people. Uh, Jesus said that he's going to build his church and the gates of hell won't prevail against it. We have certain protections here in the body of Christ. We have certain things that the, the Lord has called us to be and to do here that's not like the Kiwanis Club <laughs> or any secular organization. And today, when you read through this, I bet you some of you are going to scoot around in your seat a little bit. I do it just reading it. Because, you see, God doesn't want pervasive, persistent sin in the camp. Not that we don't sin, we do. But the Lord says that we are to repent 
and be baptized. The Lord says that God gives grace to the proud. No, he doesn't say that. He says grace to the humble, but opposes the proud. We're to be people of repentance and humility, and as somebody reminded us today, of confession. When you go back to the book of Revelation, there's this certain church called Laodicea. And you all know it, as soon as I say it, you'll remember it. Laodicea was the lukewarm church. Jesus said, I'd rather you be hot or freezing cold, but not lukewarm. I'd rather vomit you out of my mouth, Laodicea. Why? Because they got used to their sins, even though they did religious stuff, but it says in there, they would not repent. So why am I telling you all this? Because chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians, the book in which we're traveling through currently, is sort of shocking to the secular mind. Let's read it. Verse 1, chapter 5. 1 Corinthians. It's actually reported, what a way to say it, but anyway, it's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. And such sexual immorality as is not even named among the Gentiles. Watch this. That a man has his father's wife. And you, speaking to the church, are puffed up and have not rather mourned. That he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you. For I indeed is absent in body, but present in spirit have already judged, as though I were present. Him who has so done this deed, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Is this really in the Bible? Aren't we all supposed to just get along and have nice smiles and play, you know, Candyland and drive our Range Rovers and post things on Instagram and everybody be cool? Boy, that sounds a lot different. No, we're to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Therefore, purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump since you truly are unleavened. For indeed, Christ our Passover has sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast Not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people. Hmm, isn't that shocking, folks? That's actually in there. Yet I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral people of this world, or with the covetous, or extortioners, or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world, but now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or an extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. Oh my. For what have I to do with judging those also who are outside? Do you not uh, judge those who are inside, but those who are outside, God judges. Therefore, put away from yourselves the evil person, period. Hmm, what a happy uh, sermon message today. 
Here, we better pray because I need help. Lord, we thank you for this day, and we thank you for this chapter. And uh, Lord, I, I hope it speaks to us in mighty ways as we examine what it means to sin against you, Lord, what it means to uh, activate or to conduct church discipline, and why and what are the purposes for doing it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, Paul says this. It's actually reported. Remember, he's not there. He had been there previously for 18 months and poured his heart and soul into it. And it's a little town in Greece that is on an isthmus, I can't say the word, but it's a little landmass in which it's only four miles apart, separating, you know, northern Greece, which is called Macedonia in the Bible, and southern Greece now getting down into the isles. It's just this little place, and it was full of vices and uh, sexually immoral things and uh, commerce and fashion and popularity and cosmopolitan. It was just like a city out of the United States. It's just like today. And in Corinth, there was no big deal with any sort of, or I shouldn't say it that way, there was no sexual ethic at all. In fact, as I've told you several times, they had that um, uh, temple, uh, because they worshipped other gods, to uh, the goddess of love, in which they had a thousand prostitutes descend on the city every night and then the, the, the men uh, or, or the women would participate in uh, sexual re, uh, relations in order to worship to the gods, you see. And so they didn't have any sort of sexual ethic or boundaries or morality in these ways. And that's the backdrop against which God intended or planted this church. You get it? Folks, there's no sexual ethic in America anymore. <laughs> Just go watch your favorite sitcom for 1.1 seconds, and within that time, the first few minutes, you'll find out there's no sexual ethic. In fact, if you have a sexual ethic, you'll be looked on as somebody who has two heads or whatever. You will be looked on as weird and alien, and yet the Bible calls us to a different life. Remember, this is body life on the flip side, we read the good parts about body life, oh, building people up, going out to do their ministries. But what happens when we find somebody in the church that is engaging in a sexual, immoral relationship, or by the way, idolatry, covetousness, extortion, stealing from people? Um, what, do you, what do you do with, with those people? See, here's the thing I think you should recognize when you read the first two verses or three verses of this chapter. He isn't so concerned about the man. He is concerned about the man who's married in the language. It's to his uh, stepmother. He's, excuse me, he's not married. Who's having sexual relations with his stepmother. And in the uh, Greek, it's an ongoing thing. That's important. It's an ongoing, active relationship. He is concerned with the man, but what he's really shocked about, Paul is, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is that the church doesn't do anything about it. That's what he's concerned about. Of course he's concerned with the man. Of, uh, uh, notice he never says anything to the lady here. Why? Most people believe it's because she wasn't a follower of Jesus Christ. In fact, he goes on and on in this chapter to say, what do we have to say to those who are outside the faith? Well, what can we say? 
There's nothing we can say. Of course, we share with them, we love them, we pray for them. But what Paul is concerned about is that man in the church having this ongoing sexual relationship with his stepmom. Did I say wife before? Anyway, stepmom. And that nobody in the church says anything about it. Wow. Why, why would that be? Why, why would it be? You, you, ever, you ever perused in your one-year reading, man, you just, you just love it so much, you get the one-year, you know, January 1st comes, and you're going to do it. And Genesis comes, and you're flying through there, and it's just so wonderful, and you get to Exodus, and that's pretty great too. And then you get to Leviticus. And, you know, you kind of bog down in Leviticus, but then, oh, shoot, you know, just reading numbers, you know, if you give numbers a chance, it's really exciting. It really is. And, and you just keep going through, and you, you, do, you do Deuteronomy, and then, I mean, I don't know, maybe it's just my testosterone, and then you get to Joshua, and the battles happen. Oh, man. But there's one story in Joshua 7. You might want to turn there if not. You see, Joshua took the Israelites into the promised land. And they get to the first city. Do you remember this? It's the battle of Jericho. And the Lord is with them. And they just do a number at Jericho. They defeat their enemies. And then they come to this little city next. It's called Ai, I think. It's Ai. I just say Ai. I don't know how you pronounce it. <laughs> and it's never said there that they ever prayed to God. And the word Ai means little lump of dirt. It's just a peewee little city that anybody could take, right? They could do battle there. And they go in there and they get wiped out. The Israelites do because they didn't depend upon the Lord. It was self-sufficient depending. <laughs> they were depending on self. But then this amazing story, this shocking story happens. Do you remember it? In verse Nah, or 10, it says, So the Lord said to Joshua, Get up, why do you lie thus on your face? Israel has sinned and they have also transgressed. Can you imagine, uh, you, know, jo you know, Joshua, oh man, sorry Lord, what's going on? My covenant which I commanded them, for they have even taken some of the accursed things. And they've both stolen and deceived, and they have also put it among their own stuff. Can you imagine Joshua right now as the leader? Like, you know, oh, geez, who did it? Did I do it? Did my family do it? What happened? I mean, what, what's going on? They've taken some accursed things, and they've put it among their own stuff. Therefore, the children of Israel couldn't stand before their enemies. Mark that. <laughs> when they partake of the accursed things. Watch. When the people of God went out to do battle, even though they were greater in number and it was just a peewee little dirty little town, they couldn't stand before their enemies because there was sin in the camp and it was hidden and down and deep. And it says, Therefore, the children of Israel couldn't stand but turned their backs before their enemies because they have become, look at this, doomed to destruction. 
Neither will I be with you anymore unless you destroy the accursed from among you. This is in the Old Testament. Get up, sanctify the people, and say, sanctify yourselves for tomorrow. Because thus says the Lord God of Israel, there is an accursed thing in your midst, O Israel. You can't stand before your enemies until you take away the accursed thing. What's that a picture of in the New Testament? What does this portray in the New Testament? Repentance. We all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We must turn and repent and walk towards God. But what does that mean? It means getting rid of the accursed things. Keep going. And it shall be that the tribe which the Lord takes shall come according to families, and the family which the Lord takes shall come by household, and the household which the Lord takes shall come man by man. Then it shall be that he who is taken with the accursed thing shall be burned with fire. Mm. You're saying, now, wait a minute, I've committed sexual sin in my life or covetousness. Am I going to be burned by fire? Well, now, on this side of the cross, not if we're counting on the finished work of Jesus Christ for our salvation to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But look, look folks, we now are children of the king, and he does not want us to bury the accursed things. He wants us to walk in freedom towards him in a transparent, repentant, humble, confessing lifestyle. Do you get it? But here in the Old Testament, here they have he who is taken with the accursed thing, burned by fire, he and all that he has, because he has transgressed the covenant of the Lord and because he has done a disgraceful thing in Israel. So Joshua got up early and brought Israel by their tribes. Verse 17, he brought the clan of Judah. He took the family of the Zerites, brought the family of the Zerites, man by man, and Zabdi was taken. Then he brought his household man by man, and Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, the son of the tribe of Judah, was taken. Why did I do this? Because this is what sin does, folks, when you try to bury it. God just goes and lasers in right on you. Your sin, the Bible says, will find you out. You can't bury it. Now Joshua said to Achan, my son, I beg you, give glory to the Lord God of Israel and make confession to him and tell me now what you've done. Don't hide it. And Achan answered and said, Indeed, I have sinned against the Lord God, and this is what I have done. When I saw among the spoils a beautiful Babylonian garment, 200 shekels of silver, and a wedge of gold weighing 50 shekels, I coveted them. Covet, remember, in 1 Corinthians 5, I coveted them and took them, and there they are, hidden in the earth in the midst of my tent with the silver. So Joshua sent messengers, ran out of the tent, and there it was. And they took him, verse 21, or took them from the midst of the tent, brought them to Joshua, to all the children of Israel, laid them out before the Lord. Joshua, all Israel with him, took Achan, silver, garment, wedge, his daughters, his oxen, his donkeys, his sheep, his tent, and they brought him them to the valley of Achor, valley of trouble, weeping. And Joshua said, why have you troubled us? The Lord will trouble you this day. So all Israel stoned him with stones, and they burned them with fire after they had stoned them with stones. You see, sin will find you out. And the Bible says that we are to live in body life. We'll talk about that in a minute. We read from it in Ephesians 4. There's a thing that we're doing here. You understand that? It's not just so that I can just get up here every week and you know, do this. We're building you up 
for the equipping, for the edifying, of the, for, so that you can go out and do your ministries and bring people to Christ and more people will be in heaven. That's our mission. That's it. But the Bible says, if there's sin in the camp, it has to be dealt with. And so when you turn to 1 Corinthians 5, watch this. It's actually reported that there's this sexual immorality. The words pornea in the Greek, it's encompassing all kinds of sexual immoral things. There's one place that sex should occur inside of the marriage between a man and a woman. That's it. Is God a killjoy? No, he's not a killjoy. He's given that gift. But the reason he said that is because if it goes outside the borders of what God has determined is appropriate and safe and for his purposes, then it spreads like wildfire and it can lead to really disastrous, devastating results. And he knows it. So pornea, there's sexual immorality. It's all kinds. And such, such sexual immorality, look at this. It's so bad in the church that even the Gentiles wouldn't do it. Not even wouldn't do it, they wouldn't even talk about it. Not even named among the Gentiles. Oh, by the way, according to the law of God in Leviticus 18, Deuteronomy 27 and other places, what he's doing here is breaking the law, of course. But it's so awful that a man has his father's wife, again, seems to be his stepmom, and this is an ongoing, pervasive, I'm going to keep doing it relationship. No matter what you say, this is going to happen. And then the bad part is that the Corinthian church was puffed up about it and has not mourned about it. Now let's talk, talk about the responsibility of the church. We've seen something happen in the church. I want you to notice this. It's not something where, you know, I committed a sin and I went, oh my goodness, Lord, I know that I have committed a sin. I repent. I confess it. And then if I've hurt somebody else, I've gone to them and I've said, oh man, I'm sorry. That's not this situation. This situation is there's ongoing sin. People are kind of just letting it go. You get the difference? And it's ongoing, and, and it just won't stop. That's what this is. And they're prideful about it, and don't even mourn about it. It doesn't even impact them. They just let it go. How many churches does that happen in? No, you haven't mourned, and that is a shocking word. It's an, uh, the one like you would be mourning over a death. When you see a brother or sister that's in a pervasive sin and you've talked to them about it or uh, 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 you know, shared with them, and, not in a, uh, and we'll talk about how you do that, but not in a condemning way, but in a, a way that you're heartsick about what they've done and they can k- keep doing it, see? It, it, it shouldn't make you mad so much as it should make you sad. Mourning, sick, hurting for the person. It's a big difference because here you're going to be called to go do something about it. So you're mourning, or you should be mourning, but I don't find that, Paul says, that he who has done this deed, why? Might be taken away from among you. Why such harsh language? Remember reading Joshua 7. Why such harsh language? Alan Redpath says this. 
Because such sin causes the church to be absolutely paralyzed. Think back to the story of Achan. What They were on a mission to go into the promised land. What did they have to do when they found out there was some buried sin? All operations ceased. And they had to bring family after family, and they had to investigate, and they had to narrow it down, and they had to get to finally Achan and his family, and then to, right? The business of the people of God came to a screeching halt. Do you get it? Here it says, Alan Redpath says, such a sin causes the church to be absolutely paralyzed in its witness. What's the mission of our church where we're trying to have people come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, but we're stopping because we have to deal with this thing that's pervasive and causing terrible paralysis in the church, causing splits and bad feelings and anger and bitterness and all kinds of other things. It's paralyzed its witness, taken away the church's power, and removes the authority of the Holy Spirit. In fact, he goes on, if sin is tolerated, our appetite for the word, for fellowship, for praise, it all lessens as we deaden the impact of what sin is. So we can all be just sort of out there participating in some sort of religious ceremony and not really doing what we've been called to do when we come here. Isn't that interesting? So he says, We haven't mourned that he has done this deed might be taken away from you, for I indeed is absent in body but present in spirit. Remember, he's not in Corinthian or Corinth when he's writing this letter. Have already judged as though I were present him who has done this deed. So see, Paul established this church. He's sort of an elder in uh, you know, absentia. He's not there anymore, but he's sort of still an elder, a leader of the church. And I want you to know, people, folks, if you get nothing out of this teaching today, stop saying that Christians don't judge people. <laughs> when it says you're not to judge, you're a Christian, say, well, which type of person? Because Paul is clear we're not to judge the world. Why would we do that? They don't live according to the Lord or his grace or his mercy. But here, Paul clearly was judging a person who was in a relationship with his stepmom. Would you agree? So there must be something when Jesus talks about judging, judge not, there has to be some sort of things that you can judge. See this? And some sort of things that you don't judge. Like, I can't judge your motives for things. I can't judge whether you're saved or not. I can look at the fruit of your life and uh, wonder and think. But, you know, ultimately it's the Lord who judges that. So, you know, and I can't judge, you know, if God has called you to go down the street and, I don't know, uh, witness in the bar or something. I couldn't personally do that very much. But maybe you could. But it's not up to me to tell you what to do. But I can judge the fruit of your life. And when you're openly pervasively committing some sort of sin against the Lord, look at this. The leaders of the church are called to come talk to you. Not. Now let's talk about that. How do leaders or anybody 
who's called to go talk to somebody else, go talk to somebody else. Well, the first thing I would say is this. You better make sure that the log's out of your own eye before you go wipe out sawdust out of somebody else's eye. Do I have to be a perfect person to go talk to somebody? No, but I better examine my own heart. And the first examination would be, why am I going to go talk to them? And if you're honest with yourself, oftentimes when we do it that way, the reason we're going to talk to them is because we want to be seen as spiritually superior. See, Paul says none of that. In fact, he says uh, that you are to go to restore a brother, Galatians 6, gently. The whole goal of ever going to talk to somebody about a pervasive sin is not to win the argument or smash it over their head, but it's this. It's to restore the brother to fellowship or sister, and you're to do it truthfully, Ephesians 4, but also lovingly, Ephesians 4. Are you catching it? So elders are called to talk to people. People are called, you know, brothers and sisters in the church are doing it, but are called to go talk to people when they're in pervasive sin. But first, you must do it circumspectly. You must do it gently, and you must do it truthfully with the motive of ultimately restoring the person and not to win the argument or not to feel yourself to be amazingly spiritually superior. In the name of our verse 4, Lord Jesus Christ, when you're gathered together along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, church discipline should never be done independent of the power of God. With the power of God. Deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Now, you, you know this, right? You know this. If you don't know this, you could go to the book of Matthew. In a personal way, or even from a leadership way, or from a leadership perspective, if someone is committing a pervasive sin, Jesus tells us what to do. He says this, he says, after you've checked your own heart and determined that you're not going to go smash somebody or try to win an argument, you're going to go try to restore somebody, watch this, you go to them and you say, you know... Having that ongoing relationship with stepmom, probably not a good idea. In fact, it's probably a sin against the Lord. In fact, it was a sin against the Lord. He set up the law so they wouldn't do that, so that the person knew that they were in the right. So you should stop that and honor the Lord. Now, there can be one of two reactions. Wow, or maybe even more, but wow, oh my gosh, I never thought about it that way. Yes, I, I, I'm repenting. What would that repentant guy have done? Not only would he say to the Lord and, you know, confess to the Lord his sin, you, you know what would, it would show up as? He would leave the lady. He would cut it off. He wouldn't just pray the prayer and say, Lord, I'm sorry for doing this. No, he'd repent because repentance is not just saying you're sorry when you get caught. In fact, repentance is none of that. Repentance isn't saying you're sorry. It's recognizing that you've committed a sin against God and that you're going to take the actions necessary to walk according to his ways. Are you catching it? He'd actually break up with the lady. So, so you go to the person, and the, and the guy says, well, yeah, oh, geez. And then, what? Great, happy ending. I can go home and, you know, watch the Steelers or whatever. 
No, but what happens if the guy says, who are you? And this often happens. Who are you to tell me what I can and can't do? Well, first of all, that's a red flag for unrepentant heart. You're going to know in about 4.5 milliseconds when you go to talk to somebody whether they're repentant or not. What do you do? You bring somebody else with you, a witness, and you say, well, listen, this really is a sin, and then maybe that'll help. But if not, here's the end result of church discipline. You put them out. This is the part where they say you excommunicate somebody. You deliver such a one as to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. What does that mean? Do you mean, you know, put them in a Linda Blair movie and make them get hurt and spin around and do all that stuff? That's not what this means. Satan has dominion over the power of the air, the world. You could look through all of the Bible. What he's saying is, okay, if you now are abusing the grace of God and you continue to do this and you won't listen to people who are spiritually mature and have checked their heart, if you won't do that, then here's what we're going to do. You're going to not be able to come and fellowship here because you can't have the protection of the spiritual environment and the comfort of of the gathering and the fellowship, but that you're going to be put out into the place in which you're already living anyway, the world. And the whole goal there is not that, you know, we could be mean and rub it in their face. No, we want the destruction of the flesh. Now, does that mean we want the person to get hurt? No, that's not what that means. We've just been talking about it for the last couple weeks. There's this fleshly side to us that seeks to do things according to the flesh. Basically, it's the self-life. We do things according to the old nature. And what Paul is saying here is deliver one out into the world so that that part he'll get sick of. Do you remember when, don't you love this? Don't you love how amazing God is to teach people lessons? So, so, so you know, the Israelites are out in the wilderness. I mean, think about it. Every night, just that soft little manna snow. You pick it up and you eat it and you feed your family. And after a while, you know, you know, Lord, this is a pretty cool miracle, but we're sick of it. We want something else. In fact, we want meat. So what did God do? It says that he gave them so much that it was like coming out of their noses. It just filled them up to make them sick and gross and blah, 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 blah. Why? So that they get sick of choosing their own path and walking the path that God has for them. And that's this. It's not that we put you out because we hate you and we're giving you up, giving up on you and putting you on the trash heap and never want you back. No, in fact, the opposite is true. We want you to come back, but because you won't listen, we're going to deliver you over to the world. You're going to have to not stop coming here. Because you're defiling all that God wants in his message, you see. Until you get so sick and fed up of the things of the world that you come back in repentance. You see, that's the whole goal of church discipline. The whole goal of church discipline is for people to come back to the Lord. By the way, just a side note. You say, well, I don't see church discipline much. Well, that's true, and you could blame the church for that, and in some places you probably should blame the church for that, and that is true. But here's the other insidious part about 
I don't know if insidious is the right word, but the tough part about American church is if somebody comes to talk to you and you're not happy about it and you're in pervasive sin, you just go to the, another church and don't tell anybody about what's going on. That's what happens in America. You just boom, boom, boom. And nobody ever deals with it. And it just goes from church to church to church. Well, what's the whole goal? That his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Just put this man out until he loathes what he has been doing. What do we do? We cut him off from fellowship. Why? Why do we do that? Why is it loving to do this? And it is loving. Why is it loving? Because if somebody lives like that, like they were living in the Corinthian church, you know what they have? They have this false feeling of security that everything is right. Well, it must be right. Everybody welcomes me here. Everybody says hi and loves me and gives me coffee and donuts. And nobody ever says anything about my sin. I'm coming. I'll be here all the time. This is fantastic. So I can have my cake and eat it too. I can live like hell and be in the church. So it gives them a false sense of security. And that's not loving. And ultimately, what we're to do is expose him, watch this, according to Alan Redpath, to the dread, the dreadfulness, the awfulness, the loneliness of sin of which he is guilty so that he'll get fully fed up with it and come back to the Lord. Be welcomed back into fellowship. Isn't that interesting? Doesn't that give a different spin on church discipline? Well, here he says, your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? He's given you a lesson, and he's using Passover, one of the festivals of the Israelites, to show us the, the lesson here. And here's the lesson. Do you know that the, the festival of Passover was included with another festival. So Passover is one day, and then there's right behind, the next day starts the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And in the Bible, sometimes that one day is called Passover, but sometimes that whole eight days is called Passover. It includes the Passover where you eat the lamb. But then for seven days, what were they to do in their houses? They were to get out it was spring cleaning, but what they were to do was to get out all the leaven. What does leaven do? It's in bread, and it, yeah, it makes things rise. What's that a picture of? What's leaven a picture of? It's a picture of sin. You see how important it is when you repent and count on the finished work of Jesus Christ? Christ is our Passover, that what you do is you're delivered to a new life, and the old things that you used to participate in, you're putting away. You're taking them out of your house. You catch that? What would they actually do? This is fascinating. They would leave a little lump of bread that they would use week by week, and they would just take it, or day by day, sorry. Uh, they would just take a little lump and use it for the next day. And what the Lord is saying here is if you keep doing that, you're in deep trouble because at the end of the week, you're going to have a mess, and here's why. Because that little lump ferments overnight. And so it just multiplies until at the end of the week when you were supposed to be fully cleaned out in your house, you'd actually increased it because you kept just a little of it. You get that? And that's what he's saying sin's like. He's saying make sure 
that you don't do that, that you keep the feast not with any old leaven nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Here, watch. Is there hope for the man? Yes. Do you see what God is calling you to and to me to? Not to hide little sins, lest they become big. To be a person who's full of sincerity and truth. To live your life of confession and repentance out in the light, not hide it. And to really, really repent. Now here, just for a second, we're going to talk about what real repentance is because I don't think people know what real repentance is. As I mentioned earlier, repentance is, like some certain presidents, sorry because you get caught. That ain't repentance. It can lead to repentance. Godly sorrow leads to repentance. Do you remember that? What is godly sorrow? Well, David told us when we commit a sin, it's not like, oh, man, I can't believe people found me out. David said, Lord, I've sinned against thee. It's not that I just hurt my wife by looking on that phone. I sinned against you, Lord. I sinned against you. And that's devastating to me. That's repentance. But repentance then leads to action. Let me read you a couple people on repentance. J.R. Miller writes this, It amounts to nothing whatever if it produces only a few tears, a spasm of regret, a little fright. We must leave the sins we repent of and walk in the new clean ways of holiness. Vance Havner, it's a change of mind about sin and self and the Savior. Charles Hodge wrote a classic commentary on 2 Corinthians, said, Repentance is not merely a change of purpose, but includes a change of heart which leads to a turning from sin with grief and hatred thereon, or thereof unto God. Don't confuse remorse with repentance, folks. Check this out. When Judas, who had betrayed Jesus, saw that he had been condemned, he felt remorse and returned 30 pieces of silver. But what's the distinction? Repentance involves sorrow for the act of sin. Remorse is sorry for its consequences. Did you catch that? Listen, how can you tell if you or the others are repentant? I have this acquaintance. We had got to meet him, I don't know, 10, 12, 14 years ago who writes on forgiveness and repentance. His name's Dr. Steve Cornell. He's over in Millersburg area of Pennsylvania, and he writes some amazing things about forgiveness and repentance. And he gives us some signs, and I think these will resonate with you, to tell if you yourself are really repentant on something. Or, as a fruit watcher, <laughs> to examine someone's fruit. Like if I hurt Jan in a, in a bad way, with a, a bad relationship or something. Well, I could ask for her forgiveness and she could forgive me, but she's going to need to see repentance over a consistent, long period of time, isn't she? 
And here's what she could do to see repentance in my life. Here's what Dr. Steve Cornell says. I think they're fantastic. Watch this. The offender, the person like this man who has this ongoing relationship with his stepmom would do this, accept full responsibility for his or her actions. So instead of saying, well, since you th think I've done something wrong or if I've done anything to offend you, no, he doesn't say things like that. He says, yes, I was wrong. I accept full responsibility. I sinned against God and against you. Are you guys all tracking with me? How about this one? He accepts accountability from others. He doesn't say things like, who are you to check in on my life? Haven't I paid for this enough? You ever heard that one? He does not continue in the behavior or anything associated with it. He does not have a defensive attitude about being wrong. In fact, as many times as Jan would come to me in our little example here and say, man, I'm really hurting about that, if a really repentant heart wouldn't say, hey, can't you just get over it? I said I was sorry like weeks ago. You would never say that if you were truly repentant. You would say, yeah, you're right. I'm sorry I caused this. Everybody tracking with me? How about this one? Does not have a light attitude toward the hurtful behavior. Can't we just laugh about it now, hon? Oh, a repentant heart takes it seriously. Does not resent doubts about sincerity or the need to demonstrate sincerity, especially for repeated offenses. Again, in my scenario or in the man in this story scenario, I wouldn't say, Why? what do you mean? Can't you just stop? Quit saying these things to me. I apologized. That's not a repentant heart. Man. Ooh. And makes restitution wherever necessary. And he'll do this or she'll do this over a consistent period of time. Listen, watch this. As long as the offended party needs. That's a repentant heart. So you can examine yourself. We can examine ourselves about these things, these hurtful things we've done. And I would say, wouldn't you say, that we're to be people who are repentant and live in repentance. I had this argument with somebody one time. Guy said, you only need to repent once when you come into the family of God. I said, really? That's not what I read or I see. No, I think you need to live a repentant lifestyle. Look at the church at Laodicea at the end of the Bible. You need to be in constant Uh, 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 place where you could ask for forgiveness and be repentant. Don't you agree? Well, I think the Bible says that. Well, anyway, in verse 9, he says this as we finish off. I wrote to you in my epistle. Remember, Paul wrote some different letters that he didn't uh, actually, uh, that we don't have to read. We, these are just a few of them. Anyway, I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people. Yet I certainly didn't mean with the sexually immoral people of this world. Just had this argument the other day. Actually, somebody argued with me that I was not to, anyway, or with the covetous or exhaustion. The Bible says that we're to be in the world, but not of the world. We're not let the world impact us. And here what he's saying is, of course, you're going to put that one outside the church. But for people who don't believe or have surrendered their life to Jesus Christ, you have no authority to do anything. They're not part of the body. That's what Paul's saying here. 
Yet I certainly didn't mean with the sexually immoral people of this world or with the covetous or extortioners or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or an extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. You're like, whoa, what is that? What is going on? Well, remember... This isn't the place where you make mistakes or sins in this area and you repent. This is that pervasive person. After you've gone and talked to them, you brought a witness to come talk to them, and they just keep saying, heck with you and heck with the Lord. I'm going to keep doing it. That's what these people are. It's not the person who commits a sin and confesses them. That's not who gets put out of the church. We all do that. Has anybody committed one of those sins this week? Yes. But you've confessed it and moved on with the Lord. This is the pervasive, thumb your nose at the Lord. You are not. We're not even to have fellowship with them. Does that sound harsh? Yes, but the Lord's saying, I want to fill your nose up with the quail so you'll get so sick of it that you'll come back. For what have I had to do with judging those who are outside? Do you not judge those who are inside, but those who are outside, God judges. Therefore, put away from yourselves the evil person. That comes straight from Deuteronomy 17. You say, oh my goodness, he's done. It's three minutes till 12. I don't think this has ever happened. But see, I think this is a powerful lesson, and here's why. Yes, you have the the issue of spiritual discipline for people in the church. Yes, and we should practice it. But there's a flip side to that. We shouldn't be people who always have our fences up full of pride so that when people who come circumspectly and lovingly come and talk to you, that you get angry and mad and just run away to a different church. We should stay in there. Now, if the church isn't feeding you, I understand all that sort of thing. That, I get that. But, but, but did you understand what I mean? Just because somebody is talking to you about something, gosh, lighten up, folks. People are in it because they love you with broken hearts. They're coming with broken, mournful hearts. They're coming not to gossip, but to bring you back. Don't go down that road. Grabbing onto your lapels, please don't go down that road. So, so yes, practice church discipline, but also don't be such a, whatever the word is, to get upset about things. People love you here and in the body. And then the other thing is, we should be circumspect when we go. Don't go to lord it over people, slamming them. Make sure it's pervasive. It's not just a slip-up of sin. Slip-up's not the right word, but a one-time sinner. Everybody sins and moves on, but it's the one who just keeps doing it. Here's another thing. Maybe you think what you've been doing is repentance, and it's not even anything close. What's real repentance? It's living out there in transparency. I'm not talking about TMI. Don't be doing TMI. We, we have enough TMI. But to admitting this and understanding that, yes, you're frail and weak, and you can get off course quickly, and recognizing that you need the Lord in every situation of life, and don't be afraid 
to say you were wrong and you sinned against God. Maybe that's the lesson God's having for you. Maybe today the Lord's just saying, what you've been practicing all these years is, I got caught, so I'm going to say I'm sorry, instead of repenting and turning towards God. Let's pray. Well, Lord, we do. We come to you today, and we thank you for uh, this word, and thank you for (laughs) that this is in the Bible. And it's not your feel-good message, everyday message, and yet, Lord, it's really important because it can paralyze the church. And so, Lord, help us in all these ways that we've been talking about today to be circumspect, to love one another, and to do these things gently and lovingly, and to receive them if they come our way. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.